0: So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.
1: H.R. McMaster served as Donald Trump's national security advisor from 2017 to 2018. He retired from the army as a lieutenant general after multiple tours in leadership roles in Iraq and Afghanistan. H.R. McMaster, welcome to China Talk. Hey, Jordan, it's great to be with you. I really I love your podcast. Great to be part of it. So we're going to start off with a hardball question. Which Seinfeld character do you think would make the best and worst national security advisor? I I kind of model myself a little bit after George Costanza because I feel like I did leave on a high note,
0: you know. So I think, (laughs) so, so, but I think maybe Kramer because you want somebody who's a little bit creative, who thinks a little bit out of the box uh, as well. But you have to have a degree of stoicism. I'm trying to think who who else would be uh, stoic and and maybe Newman. You know, maybe Newman. Yeah,
1: it's got to be Newman, right? Maybe
0: Newman for the stoicism, maybe Kramer for the creativity, maybe George as the example of leaving on a high note. Strategic
1: narcissism. What is it and how does it imply to the way the U.S. has related to Asia? Jordan,
0: I think this has been kind of a, a lodestone around our neck is this tendency to define the world only in relation to us, and then to assume, therefore, that what we decide to do or what we decide not to do will be decisive to achieving a favorable outcome. This is prob- problematic because it's self-referential, because and it doesn't acknowledge the degree to which the other, especially adversaries, enemies, rivals, competitors, have over the future course of events. And therefore, I think, especially since the Cold War, our policies and strategies have been undercut by an underappreciation of the degree to which the other has a say in the future course of events. And and therefore we've been prone you know, to optimism bias and confirmation bias and other cognitive traps and 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 we've developed strategies largely on what we, the purveyor, prefers rather the, rather than what the situation demands.
1: Can you tie this with your sense that America is at a point of spiritual exhaustion, it seems, particularly in regards to almost anything aside from standing up to China?
0: <laughs> well, I, I think this, this goes back to the end of the Cold War. And I tell the story in Battlegrounds about witnessing the end of it as our regiment patrolled the East German-West German border. And, you know, there was reason for celebration, right? I mean, we were staring down East German border guards one minute in 1989, and and the you know, just a few hours earlier, there are tens and hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of these Germans pouring across that border, bearing bouquets of flowers and bottles of wine. There were hugs and tears of joy. We won the Cold War. And then we went to a hot war just about a year later, uh, it really, almost exactly a year later, and and had a lopsided victory uh, over, over the fourth largest army in the world uh, during Operation Desert Storm. And so in the 90s I think we bought into some assumptions about this post cold war period uh, that turned out to be false and first among these was that there was an arc of history that had guaranteed our primacy over uh, you know our free, uh, of free uh, of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems and then secondly a corollary to that is that you know great power competition was a, a relic of the past and third that That our technological military prowess, as demonstrated in the Gulf War, uh, would guarantee our security going forward and and ensure that if if any foe had the temerity to challenge us, that that war would be fast, cheap and efficient. And Jordan, I think this was a setup. It was a, a setup for profound disappointments and strategic shocks. In the 2000s, the mass murder attacks of 9 11, for, uh, foremost among those, but then also the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the financial crisis. And I think it was then in the 2000s that the emotional impetus behind our foreign policy shifted from over optimism, maybe a touch of, of hubris in the 90s, to, to pessimism
1: uh, that, that drove an attitude of resignation in the 2000s. So the turning around from that was something that you were personally a part of so uh, i'd like you to talk about how you personally as well as the government at large you know in the early years of the trump administration came to the conclusion that china was priority number one and you know to what extent that was the president as opposed to or in concert with stuff bubbling up from the agencies themselves right
0: well you know the that's the biggest adjustment i think we made to u.s foreign policy was the shift toward China uh, from this, the strategy of, you know, and these labels really are, are only limited in their utility, but the, the, the strategy of cooperation and engagement to a strategy of, of competition. And uh, you, know, when I, when I came into the, into the West wing of the white house, quite suddenly uh, unexpectedly, um, I, you know, I, I walked into an office that I thought is, was McGeorge Bundy's office. Cause I'd written a book about, about decisions that led to an American war in Vietnam. And and one of the deficiencies that I identified from a historical perspective was that we that we didn't frame that problem of, of of the of the Vietnam War and and we rushed into action before trying to fully understand what was at stake for us and what the nature of the challenge was associated with that war. So we put into place very early as soon as we put in the national security decision making policy making process into place a, a new meeting as part of that process called a principles small group framing session. And you know, not to get into too much detail, but it's basically, you know, hey, let's understand the problem first before we rush to solutions. And what we did in each of these sessions, and the China session was the second of these uh, after, after a North Korea session, um, is that we, we tried to identify what are the assumptions on which previous policy was based Many of these Jordan t- turn out to be implicit, and therefore they go unchallenged. And then we would uh, subject these these assumptions to scrutiny, uh, and then and then and then if invalidated, come up with a new set of assumptions. This was all part of trying to understand these challenges on their own terms, trying to understand what U.S. vital interests were at stake, and then to craft goals and objectives based on that overall assessment. So for China, we we. Uh, we identified the, the, you know, the main assumption as, as this assumption that China, having been welcomed in to Hello. the international order, would play by the rules. Yep, having been welcomed into the international order uh, would play by the rules. And as China prospered, it would liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of governance. Of course, by early 2017, that was demonstrably not the case. Uh, President Trump was already predisposed toward shifting our approach to China, and, and, and of course, he had made statements to that effect during uh, during the presidential campaign. But this framing of our approach to China, really, I think, helped us establish a new set of assumptions that I describe in, in Battlegrounds, and and that was that the, that the party, the Chinese Communist Party, was driven mainly by you know a combination of fear and ambition, uh, fear of losing control, and so the party would act in a way that would allow it to extend and tighten its its exclusive grip on power internally and to pursue uh, the, you know, the, the overall objective of, of national rejuvenation uh, internationally. Uh, and, and, and if China were to succeed in what was an increasingly aggressive approach to exporting its authoritarian mercantilist model, that, you know, the world would be less free, less prosperous and less safe. So we, we identified the stakes as being very high. Uh, and the need for a, a fundamental shift in our approach toward China as being long overdue
1: we're going to take a detour away from China before coming back to it. I mean, one of the things that happens very rarely is presidents and, uh, you know, American bureaucracies changing their minds on central foreign policy issues. So you, um, you know, played a part in one of those moments uh, during the surge, and you've studied another one in the, you know, time to get into Vietnam as well as get out of Vietnam. And I I guess if you could sort of walk me through how, those two moments compare or don't to what we saw 2016, 2017 um, with regards to China.
0: Yeah. I, I, George, I think that the approach is really important. The approach of first understanding problems on their own terms, then inventorying our vital interests, viewing whatever the challenges that you're facing through the lens of your vital interests and crafting an overarching goal and more specific objectives. One of the problems in the lead up to an American war in, in Vietnam is McGeorge Bundy, who was the national security advisor during those decisions. He actually argued, hey, not having a goal and objective in Vietnam, that's an advantage to us, right? Because then if we're disappointed, we can always say, oh, you know, that wasn't our objective anyway. So I, I think that especially with involving you know the, these important issues that, that involve security, that involve our prosperity, that involve building you know, a, a better future for generations to come. Uh, we 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 must be clear eyed about the nature of, the, of that challenge. And we have to establish objectives, because if you don't have objectives, you don't have any real basis for galvanizing efforts, not just across the US government, but the competition with the Chinese Communist Party cuts across not only the US private sector, but also across the free world, right? And so it was very important for us to establish a goal and objectives, to identify really uh, also, you know, what are the obstacles to prog- progressing toward those objectives? What are the opportunities we can exploit? How do we work together across the government and with like-minded partners uh, to, to counter uh, the, the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party uh, and, and to protect really, you know,
1: our, our, our safety, our security uh, and, and our competitiveness? So, you know, who else wrote their master's thesis on McGeorge uh, Bundy? Michelle Flourney. Um she did, uh, she, she did her master's. I did all this prep because she was going to come on the show, but she canceled for obvious reasons. Um, but she wrote it about the debate in the early 80s on uh, Catholicism and nuclear weapons. And um, George Bundy was a big part of that when like, you know, the Catholic bishops came out and said, nukes are bad. He wrote a letter saying, well, we still got to <laughs> live in the world we live in. Uh, so anyways, a little, little factoid for you. Uh, so in this process of sort of, Sure, 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 sure. Like seeking truth from facts. Um, that the U.S. that you sort of uh, told the U.S. government to, to do. Um, you know, one of the um things that struck out of me, uh, of course, about your 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 China chapter in this book is the first line is like the first time I showed up in Beijing was in 2017, and it's interesting comparing sort of the the decades of uh, experience uh, and exposure you've had to you know Iraq and Afghanistan to having your first time engaging with you know American. Uh, foreign policy, priority number one being um, in China. So I guess I'm curious, like, what do you think the uh, importance or lack thereof of sort of super senior leadership having subject matter expertise and where that is, you know, uh, how you think that like helps and hinders folks at the cabinet level work through issues central to, to U.S. foreign policy?
0: Yeah, I think the most important experience, Jordan, I had that was relevant to the duties and responsibilities of a national security advisor, which you know are broad and wide ranging, was my my opportunity to study history at the graduate level. and And I think what that teaches you is humility. I think historians have to be by nature humble, right? Because the study of history, you know, it it helps you recognize the complex causality of events, right? And and you know, you begin to realize that that uh, you know that life. Uh, And experience don't fit into these neat social science theories. And so, you know, I I went into China with, uh, you know, with a sense of and and considered uh, the the challenges associated with Chinese Communist Party uh, policies and strategies with a great deal of humility. I, and as a military commander as well you're never really the expert on everything but but really your job is to convene interdisciplinary expertise essentially right that that helps you understand the nature of the the problem you're facing and then what you can do to prevail right to 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 win in a competitive environment so i mean that's the approach that we took on china and luckily i had matt pottinger with me who was our senior director of asia now deputy national security advisor. Who had long experience in China, but also was was uh, was humble in terms of his approach and always learning, and and um, and and of course during this whole process, we consulted with you know, a broad range of experts, not just in, in the United States, but but across the region. We worked very very closely uh, with our allies and partners across the Indo Pacific region, for example, on crafting a positive strategy. Right, so we didn't come up with a plan that was. How do we counter the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party? We came up with a plan to promote uh, the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And and uh, and of course, this runs counter, obviously, to the Chinese Communist Party's effort to establish exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific. And, you know, today, Jordan, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about this competition, right? You hear, so I hear at times, from, at times from my Singaporean friends and, you know, others in the region, my Vietnamese friends, they say, you know, don't force us to choose, you know, why, between, you know, the United States and, and China. And, and my response is, hey, we're not asking you to choose between the United States and China. I mean, really, your choice is essentially between sovereignty and servitude. I mean, that's really what we would like countries to
1: make the choice on, or at least to have the flexibility, right? Have the freedom to make that choice. I don't want to turn this into like a discussion where we do like the referendum on four years of Trump. Um, so I think that's probably not the most interesting way for us to take this conversation. Hey, um, I'm okay. I'm but... hey, go, go for it, Jordan. Yeah. I mean, okay. You, I mean, I guess you... it's, it's like, I don't know, like presumably you weren't in favor of starting a trade war with South Korea and saying, you know, to Australia, if you take in 5G, we're not going to trade. If you take in Huawei, we're not going to trade with you anymore. But um, I guess one of the more encouraging things I've seen out of the Biden camp with this stuff is coming back to embracing that vision of understanding that this is really a multilateral game and not something that you can sort of bully allies into um, uh, into into signing up for.
0: Well, I guess, Jordan, if you hate Donald Trump enough, you begin to love Xi Jinping. And you begin to and you begin to think that, hey, you know really we're the main determinant in the you know in in the nature of this relationship. Hey, I think that's a profoundly narcissistic approach, you know and i I listened to your episode uh I think it was with Jake Sullivan like uh last yeah. year, November, and what struck me the most about that is his assumption that it was our behavior uh that that would that would determine the nature of the relationship, so I just ask that you consider what I would call the three misunderstandings in, in, in a very Chinese way uh, of, of the nature of the, the problem set associated with the Chinese Communist Party. The first of these misunderstandings uh, we already discussed, I think, which is that this is a U.S.-China problem. OK, well, let's think about it. Let's think about foisting COVID-19 on the world. Uh, let's think about, you know, I mean, punishing the doctors who are trying to raise the alarm bells about it. Let's think about the subversion of the World Health Organization. Let's consider adding insult to injury with aggressive wolf warrior diplomacy uh, aimed globally, but but mainly at Europe and and uh, North America. Let's think about massive cyber attacks against our medical research facilities in the midst of a pandemic. Let's think about the the coercion aimed at Australia. Uh, with massive cyber attacks and all all sorts of forms of economic coercion, because they had the temerity to suggest, hey, we ought to maybe look into the origins of the you know of 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 COVID nineteen, uh, or let's look at you know bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, or the national security law and the extension of the Communist Party's repression to Hong Kong, increasing aggressions. This is all since COVID uh, in 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 the uh, South China Sea, which where if they succeed, it'll be the largest land grab so to speak, in history, ramming Malaysian and Vietnamese vessels there in in recent weeks and and months, the threats to Taiwan, aggressive actions in the Senkakus. Uh, How about Xi Jinping saying in a speech, boasting, hey, the the Uyghurs love being reeducated in concentration camps. I'm going to build a few, I'm going to build a few, you know, annexes on and in turn, even more people uh, in a Whose birth rates are down sixty percent in a, in a campaign of cultural genocide? Hey, so Jordan, what I'd say is, wow, I guess man, Donald Trump did he do all that? I mean, I don't think so. And this is this is a free world China problem. But the second is is this point that you're making? Well, there's not a lot of international cooperation. How about the December 2018 indictments and sanctions of APT 10? An unprecedented number of countries joining in that. How about uh, us joining together with with, with Japan and others uh, on you know on infrastructure investment to to counter the debt trap in One Belt One Road? The Quad format uh, of India, Australia, Japan, and the U.S. being reinvigorated. The work with the EU, uh, who actually got enough backbone up to to call China a systemic competitor. Uh, the banning of Wall Ray, which is immensely important, I think, for all countries. Um, I mean, do you really expect the Chinese Communist Party to treat your citizens better than they treat their own people? And then the third misunderstanding, Jordan, is this idea of a Thucydides trap, right? That we face well, this. Let's let's, let's, stay, let's stay.
1: Let's stay there. We've, we've we've done a lot. Um. So I guess. Um, no. So Jordan, the, but you know
0: what I'm saying. I mean, this is look how self-referential we are. I mean, look uh, at what the party's done. I yeah.
1: mean, come on, right? Come okay. On. So so I guess my point was like. There are push factors and pull factors for these allies, right? And all of the push factors which you laid out that, you know, she has foisted upon the world or his own population over the past uh, three years. I mean, you've heard me do that sh- exact spiel to past guests of China Talk, right? Um, we're, on the same, we're on the same wavelength on that side. My critique is that, and, you know, I will give the Trump administration some credit for convincing a lot of allies that Huawei should not be in their system. And, um, you know, the Quad is something that sort of died in like the Bush era and is now a thing again. I, I guess the argument is more that all of this could have been done uh you know, faster and more um, oh and yeah more verve and, and, and and right,
0: right, and without the foot shots, right I mean I mean, without the self inflicted wounds of you know I mean for example Jordan, I mean, I still don't see how steel and aluminum tariffs on our allies help us get to to the China problem I mean right I mean so yeah i mean i, I I'm with you on the fact that that this strategy was and policy was imperfectly implemented, there is plenty of room for improvement. Uh, but what I, what I hope, and I'm I, I'm fairly confident actually, that a Biden administration uh, will will exhibit more elements of continuity than change in connection with the policy. And I and I do hope make, they make improvements in, in the area of international cooperation, in particular. Right? I mean, hey, if we don't work, you know, hand in hand uh, with the other the uh, the rest of the world's largest economies, in particular Japan and the EU, but others as well. Uh, China will take a divide and conquer approach, you know, and and so I mean, I, I I'm with you on international cooperation being immensely important. All right, uh, let's do number three. Number three is the Thucydides trap. You know, this is the idea that hey, the, the only two options we have uh, are accommodation of the of the you know the Chinese Communist Party's aggression or a disastrous war. And Jordan, what I would what I would say is I think we were on a path to confrontation. And I think of this approach as the three C's, right, Uh, the uh, the competition, transparent competition uh, as the best way to find areas of cooperation uh, and also to avoid confrontation. Right. And so I, I I think that the transparent nature of it is important. You know, I tell the story in battlegrounds like when we went to when we went to visit Beijing. I think this is worth looking at again for, for your, your listeners. During the press conference between, you know, Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, Donald Trump starts to, you know, President Trump starts to talk about our grievances, right, in connection with, you know, forced transfer of intellectual property, inadequate and, and, and lack of reciprocal access to the Chinese market and so forth. But then he, then he looks at Xi, Xi and he goes, hey, you know, I don't blame you for this. I blame us for this, right? So then also don't blame us, you know, when we compete again, when we re-enter." economic and informational and diplomatic and law enforcement and cyber uh, arenas of competition that we vacated under the flawed assumptions that underpinned the approach of cooperation and engagement. So
1: I want to push back on another part of your paragraph of your, of your chapter there um, where you talk about, make the argument that uh, the CCP rests on shaky foundations um, as a potential example of strategic narcissism. So um, it seems to me that sort of like doing the liberal critique of China in that like it's not strong because it doesn't have a civil society and like what it makes America great is like all of our liberal values the first thing that came to me when you said that was the other thing you wrote when you gave Cheney a list of the top 10 reasons we don't deserve to win in Iraq and it just made me think of like man what are the top 10 reasons we don't deserve to win in uh in, in a, you know, in a whatever you want to call it, a competition between uh, the U.S. and China? So maybe I don't know what the question is, but rip well, on, wait, rip no, on, first rip on of all, David, thought.
0: I think that the most important aspect of us competing effectively is what you covered with. Uh, on on your last on your last episode, right, with with David Gordon, which is, hey, to compete, we have to make ourselves better first of all, right? We have to be competitive ourselves. So there is there is a there is an aspect of, of introspection here, but the the, cha- the the chapter title on what to do about the Chinese Communist Party is called "Turning Weakness into Strength," turning what the Chinese Communist Party views as sources of weakness, uh, uh, you know, the party's weakness, if. If people were to, for example, to have a say in how they're governed. Hey, Jordan, I, I think this is one of the reasons. I mean, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons why the party is obsessed with Taiwan, Taiwan, why Taiwan, you know, is, is of grave concern to them, because what Taiwan shows is, hey, the Chinese people are not culturally predisposed toward not wanting a say in how they're governed, right? You know, look at this this rule of law speech Xi Jinping just gave a couple of days ago, right? Where, where he is at pains to say, hey, it's our brand of rule of law, right? Which means anything but rule of law. It means you can throw anybody who, you know, who, who criticizes Xi Jinping in jail for 18 years like he just did, uh, you know, th- that you can arrest people with no, with no due process of, of law. Um, and, and that's what he says rule of law is. Rule of law is really the rule of the party. And, and he makes clear in the speech, he wants to export this to the world. Well, I would say rule of law is a source of strength and strengthening rule of law, not only in the United States, but sort of supporting others who want to, uh, it could would be a cause. I, I think for, I mean, a way for us to compete more effectively. How about how about freedom of speech? Is I mean, don't you think the party's concerned about that? I mean, hey, when a when a general manager of an NBA team tweets something you know, something minor about supporting Hong Kong, what's the reaction? Aren't they? I think they're a little touchy, Jordan. They're a little touchy about it, you know. And so I think I think that's that portrays weakness to me, you know. So so i am not i'm not I'm not saying that you know and I know you had you know on, on one of your recent episodes was looking at um you know at financial and economic uh sources of weakness in in China as well and you know what's in the news lately uh at least those who are watching china closely are the are the debt crisis and so forth who knows how that'll play out I'm not an economist but uh but I do think there's a reason for us to be confident in our system i mean Jordan you know everybody is, is so up in arms about how divided American society is, you know, as, as reflected in the election. Hey, but record numbers of Americans voted, and if we weren't divided, we'd be a one-party system, right? And that doesn't, you know, that, that's not a pretty picture from my
1: perspective. Uh, the point maybe was a more narrow one, which was like, We should not base our strategy on China on the expectation that the foundations of its rule, uh, the CCP foundations of its rule, are going to crack. anything.
0: oh yeah, I I totally agree with that. I would agree with you on that, hundred percent. You know, I think I mean, you know, I I know that you know uh, when when you had David on to this last this last episode, he's like, oh, I don't think this is that urgent. You know, it's not. You know, we're. You know, I think I think he was making the argument for complacency based on his overconfidence on the superiority of our system. I think China has shown, you know, that 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 system can work for them as long as we enable it, as we have been enabling it, and then, and then uh, and and and, uh, and we should not in any way, you know, feel like feel feel superiority in a way that that uh, makes us uh, complacent.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Taiwan. Uh, how confident are you that the U.S. could repel an invasion now and in the next five years?
0: I, I'm very confident of that fact. Yeah, I'm very confident of that fact. Um, I, I think it's, it's, you know, I, I think it's it, it, what we want is we want Taiwan, you know, we would like to help Taiwan ensure, you know, that, uh, that, that China would never conclude that the People's Liberation Army and the party would never conclude that they can you know, accomplish their objectives vis-a-vis Taiwan by the use of force. And this is why it's important, I think, for, you know, for Tsai Ing-wen's uh, you know, defense, uh, de- defense reforms to take hold. Uh, this is why I think the arms sales to Taiwan are immensely important, because that's really what we want more than anything else is, to, is old, old-fashioned Thomas Schelling, you know, deterrence by denial, right? I mean, convince your
1: adversary they can't accomplish their objectives through force. What are the biggest misunderstandings about the capabilities of U.S. foreign policy?
0: Well, you know, I I think what 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 is the 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 biggest disadvantage for us uh, is inconsistency over time. Now, of course, you know, foreign policy strategy—it's never static, right? Because you're continuously interacting with other actors, right? With adversaries, rivals, partners, friends, allies, and 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 with complex environments, right? So, so the essence of strategy is to be flexible. Uh, but, but you need consistency in approach generally. And, and what I argue for in, in the book is to apply strategic empathy uh, to, to ensure that we have a more sustainable and consistent foreign policy over time. And strategic empathy is a, a term I borrowed from a great historian named Zachary Shore. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and it really communicates the importance of understanding uh, the perspective of others and with our friends, I mean, that's how we can work together to accomplish our common uh, common objectives, and for 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 rivals and enemies and adversaries to recognize the the authorship over the future that that they have. Uh, and so I I think that I would just make it an argument for a sustained approach to foreign policy. That's really what the book is overall, not just on China but on other issues. And what I really hope, Jordan, is that foreign policy and national security should be an area that we can all come together around, right across. Uh, you know, across the, the, the political parties and this partisan divide that we've seen. There has been a tendency lately, uh, you know, I think, you know, cer- certainly since the 2000s, for an administration to define its foreign policy, mainly as in opposition to the previous administrations, right? And I hope that
1: the, that we can achieve a higher degree of continuity going forward. What should the American public or, I don't know, foreign policy blob better... Except about the limits of U.S. power, which they don't currently.
0: Well, I think they have to. They have to understand the limits, but also understand that we do, as when we work with like-minded partners, especially, have agency o- over the future, and we can be and have been, I think, a profoundly positive influence uh, on, on the world. Right. So, I think it, it should it should be an understanding that it is in our interest to promote representative government and and rule of law and universal rights as. as uh, as enshrined in the UN Charter, as well as in our Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution, but also to, to recognize that that we cannot determine, you know, the, the nature of governance, and and the and we cannot determine uh, the you know the the uh, the actions that that others take, right? So we, I think, just have to look for like-minded partners and support those uh, who want to to improve uh, improve their, their own uh, you know their, their their own systems of government. I think that it's also important for us to understand that we have a lot of work to do internally, you know, that, you know, that these divisions in our society that have been magnified by maybe a kind of a, a, a what I would say a quadruple crisis in 2020 of a pandemic, a, a recession. Uh, social and racial divisions laid bare by George Floyd's murder and concerns o- over unequal treatment under the law and inequality of opportunity associated with that, this vitriolic partisan season you know, of, and a presidential election that we've just gone through, right? We have a lot of work to do internally. But what I hope Americans realize is that we don't want to become introspective to the point that we disengage from the world. I think if we learn anything from the pandemic, it should be that that, that challenges and problems that develop overseas can only be dealt with at an exorbitant price once they reach our shores. So, you know, I, I think that it's important for us to have an internationalist approach to to security and to remain engaged
1: uh, with our friends and partners uh, around the world. HR, you you there was a point in your book where you talked about how the ISI was really good at manipulating. American counterparts. I'm curious, who's on the power rankings of that list at the top and the bottom, oh, yeah. and where would you put the where would you put the Chinese there on that on that scale? <laughs> hey, the, hey, the Chinese they they were like at the top under you know from from the Deng Xiaoping era,
0: right? But they kind of lost they lost their ability. They went they went overboard, man, with wolf warrior diplomacy, right? So now so now they you know the, so now I think the Chinese lost their standing maybe as as the as the as the most. Uh, persuasive you know deceivers uh, of of senior uh, us personnel uh and, but i i think that you know, they still they still have this this program, these programs. They want to co-opt elites and they want to dominate the narrative. Right. That's the way uh, you know China, China uh, wants to wants to continue to influence us and keep us complacent, keep us from competing against them. Hey, I would put Pakistan way at the top of the list. You know, I think that they understand that that leaders at the most senior levels tend to be egotistical. Right. They tend to believe, hey, I'm going to be the one who's going to make a difference. So with Pakistan, it's basically convincing as they do. <laughs> hey, you're going to be the person that really gets me to change my behavior just work with me, you know, over time and it'll all be, it'll all be great. Well, of course, you know, that's, that's a lie. Uh, I think Vladimir Putin's been really good, you know, at holding out the prospect of, you know, of of improved relations with Russia, right? George W. Bush looked into his soul, right? Hillary Clinton brought the reset button. President Obama leaned over to Medvedev said, Hey, we can work with you more after the election and traded off missiles in, in Poland, uh, defensive missiles in Poland for what he hoped would be a better relationship. And then, of course, Donald Trump fell for it, you know, hook, line and sinker. You know, Uh, you have, uh, I think you put Iran at the top of the list. The Iranian regime, I don't think, has changed its philosophy since 1979. There have been internal struggles over it. But, you know, those who have remained in power are the supreme leader, the Guardian Council and the IRGC. But they put forward these shop windows of the regime. Now it's Zarif and Rouhani. To make it seem as if, hey, if, if you just give us a payoff, you know, we're going to, you know, we'll change the nature of our behavior. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll cut back at least on our four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, uh, the, the little Satan, the Arab monarchies, you know, and, and, uh, and others uh, who don't support their hegemonic designs in, in, the, in the region. Uh, I, I write about North Korea, the, the Kim family regime being pretty adept at this. I, I keep replaying the, 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 the playbook that they use against us of provocation followed by extortion of a big payoff just for the privilege of talking to them, long drawn out, frustrating negotiations, which deliver a weak agreement that locks in the status quo as the new normal. And then they immediately break that agreement so they can go back to the same cycle of provocation and so forth. So I, I think that, you know, all those countries are, are on the list. And the the what I recommend as the cure for this kind of, you know, which I would call it serial gullibility uh, is is is, uh, is strategic empathy, and and in particular, learning history, right, Jordan? I mean, I mean, if you understand how the past, at least the recent past, produced the present, that can inoculate you against making mistakes in the future.
1: All right, we got a we got a fun history one. Pick three, either heads of state or generals. Um, American or otherwise, you can go back to ancient Greece for all I care. Um, which, who would, what campaigns, time periods would you like to serve as like the equivalent of the NSA or you know a, a on the on the senior staff uh, of a of a general.
0: Well, I mean, come on! I mean, you've you've seen the musical Hamilton, right? How would you not want to be in on that? You know, and <laughs> and I'll tell you, Jordan. I mean, uh, of all the distinctions, you know, that that I, I think I have as, as the National Security Advisor, right? I wasn't going to be the longest serving. I wasn't going to be the you know the shortest serving. I wasn't going to be the smartest, you know. But I think I was the funkiest National Security Advisor who served. <laughs> and so I think that you know when I when I look What's at Hamilton, mean? I think I could I could pull it off. I think I could pull it off uh, one of the roles there. But then but then also. Um, you know, I, I think the of course the revolution, a time of, of just dramatic change in this radical idea that sovereignty lies neither with king nor parliament, but with the people, hey, something worth fighting over. I think, uh, I think, uh, I think I would have I would have thought it a privilege to fight in the in the civil wars, as horrible as an experience as that was, uh, because it's a war that that in which after which you know we emancipated four million of our fellow Americans. Of course, to, only to be set up for the disappointments of failure of uh, failure of reconstruction and rise of Jim Crow, but the beginning of a long struggle for true uh, equal rights and for true, uh, the, 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 you know, tr- uh, truly achieving uh, what was envisioned in our Declaration and in the Constitution. All right, third one can't be American. Okay, uh, I mean, you know, I think the Napoleonic Wars, right? And and uh, and I would like to have been. Kind of in the role of Karl von Clausewitz, right? Okay, every, every you know every American general wants to quote Clausewitz, but you know, but you think of him as a great military philosopher. But you know, he was a scrapper. I mean, he went, you know, he went to war as a teenager. Uh, he was a he was a person of principle when he thought the Prussians were selling out. You know, he fought with the you know the the uh, the, the Russians against the hated Napoleon and the hated French from his French from his perspective. Um, he was, I, I think, an extraordinary officer uh, who who understood uh, really the the full range of what it, what are the essential elements of success from the tactical level all the way through the strategic level.
1: So this question was a fun one, but it was also a bit of a setup. Um, uh, in that uh, part of strategic empathy is understanding what your um, you know adversaries define as important, and I can maybe. A PLA general would pick Washington, but they would most likely pick something from the Three Kingdoms, or you know, the Chinese Civil War, or you know, putting down Typing Tengu or something. So I think this is calling out to you and everyone else out there. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna reference a uh, an article uh, by by Tanner Greer of Scholar Stage, um, which sort of writes about the Chinese strategic tradition, and I think there is a real lack of understanding of Chinese military history in the U S and our, yeah, I, th- so I, I,
0: I, I would agree with that. I think this is a weakness for me, certainly, you know, but, but I'm thinking of, a, you know, the, you know, there's a book called military Orientalism that I highly recommend. And, and in it, the author his, and historian looks at the interaction of the Western way of war with the Eastern way of war. And, and one of the conclusions on, on his part is that militaries as they interact certain principles tend to emerge that are common to both. So what, whereas I agree, Jordan, that there are, you know, there, there are cultural determinants that, that are impor- very important to consider uh, in, in, you know, in the perspective of military history. The other book that I would recommend um, is, is Wayne Lee's book, The History of Warfare. Okay, now who in their right mind would take on the history of warfare across all cultures? And I think he did it like extremely uh, competently. You know, and and um, but right, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, of course, I have. You know, I'm an American historian because I mean, I, I wanted to limit the amount of history I had to know. You know, when I, when I when I took my final exams with uh you know, with my committee, I did the written exams and I met with Don Higginbotham, awesome historian of the American Revolution and just a great person with a great sense of humor. He told me, Jordan, he said, "Hey, congratulations! You now know more history than you will ever know." So yep. So I think. Obviously, I still have a lot to learn and a lot probably
1: to relearn as well. Let's do a book hour with H.R. McMaster. We can do this a few ways, like books that were most influential on you, books you've read that changed your mind the most, what you've read recently that has impacted your thinking, what you think the next president should read, maybe.
0: Well, yeah. okay. so so I I I have a recommended reading list in Battlegrounds because really, I mean, I, I, I mentioned in the conclusion of the book. Uh, battlegrounds was a continuation of my own self-education, right? And I do believe that education is the greatest strength of uh, of a nation, right? And and so what, I, what I'm hoping is that this book will be a beginning, right, for people to learn more about these complex challenges. Uh, you know, on on China, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I think it's it's difficult for at least from a U.S.-Chinese relations perspective, right, to beat John Pomfret's book. I mean, uh, this is the the beautiful country in the, in the Middle Kingdom. I mean, I, I learned I learned a ton from it. I, I mean, I really. Um, uh, I really appreciated uh, this, the, the, the way he tells the story and the way he, he carries themes throughout throughout the book. Um, I think on, on, on Russia, I just finished Putin's People. That's not on my recommended reading list, but I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, on the competition between uh, Iran and, and, and Saudi Arabia and how that dynamic has set up what we see as a, a catastrophic uh, civil war in the Middle East. Uh, Kim Gaddis's book, Black Wave. I just finished that, uh, which I, I you know I've been reading in it. I usually have a few books going at a time. We've got you few- can So I I, I think uh, you know I, anyway. I mean, you know, at the re- I recommend the recommended reading book uh, reading list in in, in, uh, in battlegrounds. Uh, but but you know I think I think uh, from understanding what we're going through as a society, I, I just uh, I just finished Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. Uh, which is, a, which is a, a bit of a history of how segregation happened and what policies created, inequality of opportunity, especially in the area of education. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, a, no shortage of good books to, to read, but, but that's what I've been reading lately. Also, you know, on topic, uh, Dan Blumenthal's The China Nightmare I've got right here that I'm working on. And then I think Jonathan Ward's book, uh, which I would recommend, uh, China's Vision of Victory, is important as well because I think we tend to look at discrete aspects of the Chinese Communist Party's policies and, and strategies uh, without understanding what they're trying to achieve holistically. And I think these two books do a very good job. the other The other aspect I think of, of Dan Blumenthal's book too is you know he's he, the subtitle is the grand ambitions of a decaying state, right? So I think this is is consistent with you know the, la- the last few of your episodes as well that we have to be cognizant of you know, what we see as, as China's competitive advantages and, and how we compete effectively and, and, and protect and advance our interests, but also we have to be cognizant, I think, of, of, of our competitive advantages and their relative weaknesses.
1: H.R., I still don't know quite how to process the fact that my most prominent guest ever also seems to have listened to the most China talk of any of my other guests. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hey, hey, it's you know hey, we're in a vicious cycle, Jordan. We're in a vicious cycle of
0: Zoom and Peloton, right? So what I've been doing lately is I turn down my Peloton instructors, as
1: much as I hate to do it, you know, and, uh, and, and, I, and I, crank, I crank your podcast. I will say also for the benefit of our audience that I was not expecting you to be a color coding your book type of person. I figure you would do it by, you know, decade or something. My daughter set it up for me. <laughs> OK, great. Oh, yeah. What do you mean you're, you're the
0: funkiest NSA? That's a ridiculous comment. Hey, but you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. You know, I'm I really into the Motown sound. And then, of course, you know, I came of age during the era of Earth, Wind and Fire and the, and the, and the Commodores. And, and then, of course, Parliament Funkadelic. You know, and I think, Jordan, what we need in foreign policy is we need to find our rhythm. You know what I mean? And and so I, I think that, uh, that, that I'd like to quote uh, Clinton here. Uh, on this, and I think this is really the philosophy of your podcast as well. And and when I say a Clinton quotation, I mean George Clinton. And and I think we ought to remember that you know that that uh, you know that free your mind uh, and your ass will follow. And so I mean I think this is really wisdom for us uh, in that in that we have to think uh, clearly about the challenges we're facing, uh, and but and, and not lead with you know the other way around. You know we want we want our
1: mind our, our mind to lead. Well, I don't know if you appreciated my swing state hip hop mini mix that featured a number of uh, Philadelphia rappers, but HR, uh, the last question I was going to ask was what you wanted your outro music to be, but I guess we have our we have our answer already. <laughs> that's right, or, or you know, maybe one one nation under a group would be appropriate because that's what we need at this stage <laughs>
0: to keep with the part with the Parliament theme, you know. All right, let's do this again soon. This was too much fun. Hi, <laughs> Jordan, hey, it was really fun. Hey, thanks for your podcast, really. Deal, <laughs>
1: Just to dance our way Out of our constriction Call
0: the be freaking up and down The hang-up alleyway With a groove I only got We shall all be moved Ready or not, here yeah. we
1: Yeah.